in life, there's only really two things that matters, and it's the chances you get and the choices you make. And this was one of the biggest ones. On this episode of Latinx, I speak with Chuck Rocha, a political consultant, author, and former senior campaign advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign, about making tough decisions, going into politics, second chances, and the Latinx vote. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for the new generation of Latinx. We want to go beyond listening. We're ready to speak up. So join me in conversation every week as I meet Latinx from all over, de diferentes colores y sabores. As you know, a podcast is a journey, and I would love for you to follow this one. So join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx and reach out. You can also find out more at our website at wearelatinx.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please note that this episode contains profanity. Why did you decide to go into politics? That's a great question. And you know, um, in the book, T.O. Bernie, mm. which is at toburniebook.com, I've been taught by my staff to say that a lot, <laughs> that I write about this, right? Because I think it's such a unique story. Uh, and I used to think that it was super unique. And now I realize that it's a unique story in an ocean of unique stories, but it helps tell who I am as a strategist because it's how I look at the world. So I grew up in rural East Texas. My mother was just 15 when I was born. My father was Mexican and he left when I was really young. And we lived in a little trailer house next to my grandmother's house on a little bitty 20 acre farm, 30 acre farm. And nobody in my family was involved in politics. Nobody in my family really voted. Nobody talked about public policy. Like nobody in my family had pretty much graduated high school, much less college. Super rural, super, and you see it, anybody in Texas who is hearing this right now, they can relate. Like that's how a lot of, I like to say now that there are more young black and brown kids who never go to college than black and brown kids who actually go to college. We're the majority of people don't go to college. And so I needed people to know before they knew in the book what we did with Bernie, of why I did that with Bernie and why I look at campaigns through a certain lens, which is a big brown man who looks really white. I mean, looks really brown, but talks really white, who never went to college, who's got a criminal record, uh, who had a baby when he was 19 and carried on a long tradition of babies having babies and then took full custody of that kid. And I raised my boy by myself and had to live through real life experiences. Like I talk in the book about getting my truck repoed when I was out working on campaigns in my early 20s because I forgot and didn't have the money to make the payments. Like those are real stories where I want some young brown or black kid to see like who maybe didn't go to college or is in community college and not at some elite college who's like, Chuck Rocha did this. And he right. figured out a way to make, to overcome this, to run Teal Bernie's campaign and to be a senior advisor. So I wanted the story to, sure, everybody wants to talk about Bernie Sanders and the Latino vote. But I, I get you in on that, and I really go in depth about what it's like to try to find yourself as a mixed-race kid who talks like a redneck in East Texas, learning campaigns through the eyes of a union. And then I tell a lot of the stories about being in a factory where I worked and where I joined the union and what that was like. And it was, it was the first entree into politics because I became a union steward by happenstance. I tell a really great story about how I'm not an activist at this point and how because the chief steward's like, if you'll do this job and you need to do union business, we'll bring somebody else in to do your job for you. And you can just walk around and be the union steward. And I was like, Hoo -hoo, sign me <laughs> up. 
like, I don't have to work and I still get paid and I can go to the shower early and I can go to the club before everybody else gets to the club yeah. and I can drink. Like these were real life decisions for a 19 year old kid yeah. in a factory that made Chuck Rocha who he is because that's how I see the world. So now when I'm in this powerful room with all of these big consultants and all of these presidential candidates, congressional candidates, and they look to me, my answers are always different because I've lived that life because I come from no wealth. I've never been to college. I've like had real life experiences with crime or with uh, law enforcement of getting beat up by the cops or having a criminal record and having to overcome mistakes in my life. I've lived what the voters we're trying to talk to have to go through every day. So I feel like that makes me a better strategy. Do you think that you decided to be in politics because of the hardships that you went through and you thought that there should be more representation like that in the higher ranks? Later I did, but not in the beginning. In the beginning, I just knew I didn't want to work in that factory anymore and be a manual laborer, <laughs> right. right? And so the union was my way out of there. And then as I started doing that more, I really had a reflective moment in my early 30s. I'd moved up. I'd gotten out of the factory. I was working for the union full time and I was running all of these campaigns. A, when you don't have an education and you have to figure out how to get things done without a computer and without a cell phone back then, you just out hustled everybody and you have to use your, your charm, right? Like you had to be good with people. And I realized I was good with people and that I had a natural yearning to want to protect what the story in the book will tell you is that my mother, who's a really slight woman, she's a little bitty thing, weighed a hundred pounds, sopping wet when I was, you know, when I came around in her life and she ain't got much bigger than that. I always had to be the man of the house growing up. And then my little sister raising both of them. Right. So I was always in a protect mode and it helps that I'm six, one, 200 pounds, big, you know, brass, some would say Mexican redneck from East Texas. So I was always the protector. And then when I went to high school, I played offensive line and played football in Texas. So I was protecting my team and the quarterback. Then when I went to the factory, I became a union steward and I was protecting all my guys from the management team. So at every step of my life, I felt like I needed to be the big person in the room to take the bullets or the punches and be the protector. And I think that really made me excel in what I was going to do later, which was there's all these people in America that I felt like had nobody speaking for them and needed somebody to protect them from all these powers to be with all the money. So that was where the hunger came later to be like, oh yeah, this union thing is cool because I can literally tell the boss to go screw himself if he's doing somebody else wrong and I can't get fired for it. So I was protecting and that grew into just learning a skill and being really good with people and then being one of the constituents to say, take this real life experience, you're yearning, you have to protect these people who need protecting with your service workers, teachers, anybody who's not rich and has all the influence, they need representation and people elected. So that was the motivating factor after I kind of learned about politics. That's what just what started you off. And that led you to be the senior campaign advisor, which by the way, I found out the reading that you were asked to be the campaign manager and you declined. Can you tell me a little bit about why, since it's so hard to say no to that, I think. It was, it really was. It was in the top two or three hardest decisions I've ever made. We all, I, my son will tell you that I talk about in life, there's only really two things that matters and it's the chances you get and the choices you make. And this was one of the biggest ones. And when Jeff came to me, Jeff, the other senior advisor who'd been with the center for 38 years, for those of you who don't know Jeff Weaver, who managed the race in 16, he's one of my best friends. And he came to me and he's like, 
I had been, I had been hiring all the staff. I'd been interviewing everybody to fill out the campaign and literally building the campaign with my own hands with Jeff. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had been looking for managers and I'd been interviewing managers for Jeff. And then we would get together and we would interview them together and, and realize if they were somebody that the Senator should actually meet or not to be offered the job of manager before he ever decided to publicly announce this is all happening behind the curtain, secretively secret lunches, like all the intrigue you read in all the books. It really does happen. It was super cool to be there. One day Jeff said, would you consider doing it? And I was like, don't, don't, don't. You could hear the music go, don't, don't, don't. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah. He said, and I'll never forget. He said, Chuck, I trust you. And he said, more importantly, Bernie trusts you. And he goes, that's really what we want in a manager, somebody we trust. Like we can all run this campaign, but he trusts you. And I was like, I'm going to need a minute. I'm not going to answer that right now. I never really thought about it. And so I just remember going home and starting to call like my best friends and people and be like, do I want to do this? Is this something? Sure. I want to, because in my, in the most competitive vein of who I am, I'm a football coach. I'm a protector. I'm the person in charge. I'm the one rallying the troops. I'm the one to take the first punch, like back to what I just described. Like I was made to be the campaign manager, right? In my spirit. But I, I, I just knew that it was so big. I couldn't overreact and, and jump to something and be like, sure, yeah, I'll do it, do it. I needed to think about it. And so it took weeks. And I think I described in the book it taking like six weeks, continue to do interviews, continue to mull. But the bottom line was, I got a call from Tim Tagaris, who was our fundraiser, our digital strategist, and one of the most honorable men in politics. Uh, and he's just as, just as honest and kind. I say that because he's just not like me. Like he's quiet and he just does his work. He raised Bernie $200 million on the internet. Like he's really good at his job. <laughs> and he's a Marine and he's a silent Marine, right? And so he called me one day because had, he had been helping me through this decision. He said, you know, he said, you, sh you should know that there's a million people on the internet who hate every fiber of Bernie Sanders being, I mean, viscerally hate him and you should know, and you should be prepared. If you're the manager, they will have that same hate for you. And you should know that they will try to uncover anything and everything in your life, in your business, in your personal life and try to destroy you like they do Bernie Sanders. Now, as a man who was 50 years old at the time, who had lots of skeletons in my closet, who let's be clear is a convicted non violent felon. I have a felony conviction on my record, right? I've, I'm past that in my life. There's a lot of detail about Bernie Sanders hiring me for that. And I talk openly about that in the book to teach people a lesson about how you take on these challenges. So I thought, my God, like, I don't want this campaign to be about the, the felon who's running Joe, who's running right. Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. But more importantly, I didn't really, that was going to be more of an opportunity. If you think about it, I could talk about that and it would be behind me forever because we would address it early and it would be gone, even though it never had really been a big part of my past other than not getting hired by a few campaigns who did a quick Google search, right? So that was going to be almost an opportunity more so than the other thing. What really was the final, final straw was I'd spent 10 years building out the largest Latino-owned political consulting firm in the nation, Solidarity Strategies. Had five or six Latino staffers, all immigrants, children of immigrants, and every two years, we did a different crew of young people and they mentor, then they fly away and do amazing things. I built this firm with my bare hands, all with a hundred young black and brown kids. And what really bothered me and what was the end of it is, was it worth sacrificing the firm to take this job that I felt like was just about my ego? 
when somebody could come after me, come after the firm, come after my kids, as I call them. And I couldn't, I just couldn't, I couldn't palate that. And I was so mad because I felt like people of color have to bear a different burden than white people when it comes to these decisions. They automatically take it. They automatically have something to fall back on if it don't work out. They automatically have their mom and daddy's money if things don't work out. I had no safety net. So that was the final cause. And I went to Jeff and I was like, look, man, I said, you need somebody who's much cleaner than me to run this thing. Who's going to be in the spotlight. You need some, you need some saint. Like I've gotten drunk most of my life. I've beat the hell out of lots of people. I've had a hundred different girlfriends and I'm still single. Like there's just too much shit out there that somebody could find on me at some point that somebody could make up. Like I've never done anything bad, but I was like, let's find somebody and I'll help you run the campaign. I will literally run the campaign for you, but let's just put somebody else in the chair who's more innocent than Chuck Rocha. And that was the end of it. And we ended up finding Faz who was perfect. The first Muslim American, happily married, two beautiful kids. He don't even cuss. Like that's who you want. <laughs> you want the opposite of Chuck Rocha. So yeah. I put, I was the guy behind the guy and got to run the campaign, build out the campaign. I reported to Faz who I love and he was the right choice. I described in the political article that yeah. Faz was the right choice because I've never seen him get over a five and I constantly live at a nine. For the first time in the history of United States elections, Latinx will be the largest minority group in the country with a record 32 million eligible voters. The issue that Latinx serving organizations face is getting these 32 million eligible voters to actually go out and vote. And that's probably why it's important to take a look at the Bernie Sanders campaign. In this year's primaries, Bernie Sanders won huge levels of support from Latinx voters. In Nevada, Bernie won 53% of the Latinx vote. To put that in perspective, his closest competitor was Joe Biden with 17%. Then, in California, Bernie won 49% of the Latinx vote and 39% in Texas. In short, Bernie Sanders was very popular among Latinx. And in 2019, Bernie was ahead of all other presidential candidates in the Latinx vote. How did he do it? Do Latinx vote, but haven't found a candidate in the past that they feel will fight for them? What was immediately interesting to me about your book and about your work and what you managed to do with the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign is that they do go out and vote. You just have to speak their language and sprinkling a few speeches with Spanish words isn't going to cut it. There's a difference between, first of all, Hispanics and Latinos, and then we all come from different countries and the cultural backgrounds. And even yo como Mexicana, soy muy diferente a la Mexicana del Norte de Texas. I'm much different than the Mexicans in Brownsville because I come from Tyler and we're in the same effing state. Yeah, yeah. What's your goal with the book? Why now? The goal is a couple of things. One is uh, back to the Latino vote. So one of the goals is to make this program that me and 206 other Latinos, not me, us, put together, right? I got to be the head of it. Most of this was my idea, but there was a team of people who did this. So I get all the credit, but I, in the book, I talk about the team, right? One of the big reasons for writing the book was to open source this sister and to put it out. Yeah, sure. It cost you $19, but it's an open source of anybody now can do what I did in any race if they want to, right? I explain in the book how you make the investment. I explain in the book when to make the investment. I explain in the book what a multi-layered paid communication structure looks like. More importantly, I break it down and walk you through state by state of how that works. 
Why did we do this in Iowa? When did we start this in Iowa? Why was our first communication to any voter in Iowa bilingual communication, right? Part of that was some jujitsu in the book of me knowing that I had a unique place in history. Even though I turned down the manager job, I'm sitting at the table with just two other people making decisions about millions of dollars of budget. And I literally can do something crazy like, let's send some mail to Iowa immediately and talk, start talking to Latinos now and not stop for seven months. And they were like, well, how much is that gonna cost? I'm like, it ain't but 50,000 people. It'll cost less than a million dollars. They're like, if you think you're like, I, and so I positioned myself in the program to either, and I'm just lucky that it worked out, to dramatically make the biggest success that anybody had ever seen or fall flat on my face, but I knew I had to try. And I knew nobody else would ever be in a position to try again for a long time. So we, we talk about the budget, we put the budget in place, and then we implement the budget and we give you details of that. So the first part of the book, it's actually the end of the book, but the big part of the book is explaining what the Latino outreach strategy was and how we implemented it. The beginning half of the book is what we just talked about, which is what I say is my journey to Bernie. I walked through growing up in East Texas, then going to work in a mill, then doing the work on the road. I walked through making a mistake in my life and getting a nonviolent felony. And I also talk about Hillary Clinton and her campaign in 15 before Bernie announced, and this is, you'll be the first reporter to have this, who turned down hiring me because I couldn't pass vetting. I was told that our materials and our work with Solidarity Strategies was up in heads and shoulders above all the other Latino uh, materials that they had seen. I was pitching them to hire us for Latino strategies only, like really pigeonholed. And I was told I, that me and my firm could not pass vetting because of my criminal record. And so that was a big, a big crushing blow to me. But again, chances and choices, a friend of mine calls me and I go through this in a book, you know, weeks later, months later, and he's like, I'm, I need some help translating a website. And I'm like, sure. Like, what do you need? And I was like, it's Memorial Day weekend. He's like, I need it on Memorial Day on Monday. And I was like, are you crazy? He's like, no, I need it done. I'm like, it's going to cost you. And I tell a funny story about how I did $585 worth of translations to do a website for this dude named Bernie Sanders for this consultant that I knew. Who would have known that four years later, the amount of money that went through my firm because I translated a $500 website and was the Mexican for that moment to be, yeah, I'll be your Mexican. I will, I will translate this to open up the doors to this whole world to where when I sat across from Jeff Weaver in 2015 and I tell this story, and said, look, he wanted to hire me to do more work and do all this stuff. And I was like, cool. I'm like, but you should know about this thing that happened to me in my past in case it's mm -hmm. gonna, cause I just lived through not getting a job because of my past, right? And in the book, I talk about how he looked at me across the table and he was like, you don't think, oh, we know about this. Like we knew about this the first time we talked to you, Chuck. He's like, I'm like, does the Senator know? He's like, of course. And I'm like, Y'all still want it? He goes, yes. He goes, he said, Bernie said to me, how long are you supposed to pay for a mistake you made in your past the rest of your life? And I was like crying at that point. I was like, I'm all in. I was like, whatever you need me to do, like for anybody to look at me so unjaded, right? Now keep in mind, I never went to prison. I never, it wasn't a crime like that. It's a nonviolent felony that I paid a fine for mm -hmm. and I served probation time for it. It was absolutely a mistake I take credit for. And I talk about that. That's very important as a young person to, to own up to your mistakes and you can get past them like I have if you own up to them and move on. But I had just shown within a two month period, me being still punished for that from one campaign and another campaign taking me on in spite of that. 
and four years later running the most historic Latino outreach program in the history of American politics, it really makes me happy that they took that chance. Me dieron ganas hasta llorar y se me puso la piel chinita because that's, it's true. And I think we've become so aware of what we do and very scared and we don't realize that one, one mistake doesn't define who you are as a person, doesn't need to define your future. It's a very important message that all of us, I think, right now have to... I appreciate your, what you're saying and I think you're right. And I see this with the young staff that I have that come through the firm, right? But let me give you real world implications of why it's important to have diversity and people like me in a campaign. That means black, brown, young, gay, and former incarcerated or former felons, right? So because of how I had made the hardest decision of my life to not do the campaign manager, to your point, chances and choices, I lucked into being the most powerful person in the campaign besides the manager to do the things that I really wanted to do, which was run the campaign. I didn't want to be on the road with Bernie. I didn't want to do policy. I didn't want to do rallies. Like that is an incredible job for an incredibly patient person. And that's why the campaign manager Faz was so incredible because he just did all of that stuff that was the hardest work. I got to run the campaign in the States, but I don't say that to brag on me. I want to connect what you just said to this point in time. So because I got to do all the, in, the initial interviews for all of the staff early on, people would send me the resumes and we didn't have an HR department at that point. At some point this gets handed off for the more junior staff. But in the beginning, every resume come across my desk and I would do a Zoom interview like this with people, right? So can you imagine when somebody, when I would look at them and say, is there anything about you or in your past that I should know about? Because we're going to do a vet on you because we legally have to vet you before I can hire you. But if you'll let me know now, anything that's in your hat past, you won't be judged, but I would like to have a conversation about it. And then I literally could say to them, I'm a former felon and I work here as a senior advisor and I'm in charge. So this is a safe space for you to tell me what's happened in your life and let's have a conversation. Holy shit. It just broke down all the barriers, right? So people would go, ah, this thing happened and they would be embarrassed. I'm like, just tell me, don't be embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. Let's have a conversation. And then when I see it on the vet, we won't have to worry about it because you've told me about it. If you don't tell me and I see it on the vet, you can't work here. But I'm telling you now, I'm opening up myself because I showed I was vulnerable to them. They would always tell me. And I tell you that to say that we hired lots and lots of people with criminal records. And guess what? We never had one ounce of trouble from any of them. We had a ton more problems with woke white boys who had went to some elite college who wanted to be liberal activists and show up in an office and be an asshole to a girl than we did with any hmm. former felon or former criminal who wanted a shot because once they got that shot, guess what they did? They busted their ass and they kept their nose clean and we had no problem from them. And so like I talk about that in the book of like, that's a point of personal pride for me to be able to be there. And the good thing is, and I don't make this sound like it's just Chuck Rocha because it was not just me. Jeff Weaver, the same dude who said, Chuck Rocha, why should you be punished for the rest of your life for a mistake you made back then? And Fast Secure, the campaign manager, who we literally went and hired from the ACLU as their political director. When I said I found the perfect manager, we did, not just I. The political director at ACLU, first Muslim American, like he is as left liberal as anybody. I mean, from certain times we would see a vet, like I like to take credit and I'd be like, this dude killed somebody. And I'd be like, mm, maybe we don't want to do this fast. Be like, yep, let's do this. And I'm like, what? Holy shit. Okay, cool. I'm down. But I would be the one almost questioned a little bit. But Faz would be like, nope, let's go. That is fine with me. 
we would have certain parameters. Like right, if you right. had messed with a baby or if you had done something to a woman, like, of course we couldn't have you. But short of that, we would hire a Bernie Sanders campaign. And do you think that this is what influenced getting the Latino vote and the outcomes that you uh, were able to achieve with Latino voters? I think it had part of that, right? It's such a hard thing to describe in absolutes. Most of the success that we had with the Latino vote had nothing to do with policy or with strategy other than the targeting. What I made sure that we did is what nobody else ever does, which is talk to a broad group of Latinos. Most people only go talk to Latinos who are prime voters, like our mothers and our grandmothers. What we did is we expanded that universe to talk to people who had never been talked to before. But what super duper helps is when you have a candidate who stays on message all the time and talks about things Latinos really can relate with. Medicare for all, minimum wage, free college for you know, public universities. The things that Latinos are like, oh, what? He's going to do what? Yes. Like this guy? I like this guy. And then he was kind of a character on top of that. So it was the perfect storm. But in the book, I describe one of the things that helped me a lot was early on when we did poll, we did testing of messages to voters and I made them oversample Latino voters in a couple states. And let's just say that once white people heard Bernie Sanders message, the people that were with somebody else or undecided would move like six points more to Bernie after hearing his message. Black people would move the same four or five points more to Bernie. When you told a Latino what Bernie Sanders was for, it, it moved them 12 points. So I had the incredible advantage of while I was in the room making the argument to spend more money on Latinos, I had polling to back me up where everybody was like, you know, the Latinos do move the most. This is probably not worth trying. I mean, it's probably worth trying because the numbers are reflecting that when we talk to them, they do move. So we would, we would diverge the strategies in those ways. You can pre-order Chuck Rocha's book, Theo Bernie, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. The book talks about the Latinx who worked and volunteered for the Bernie Sanders campaign. You can also learn more about Chuck and what he does on his political consulting firm, Solidarity Strategies, at SolidarityStrategies.com. I sometimes believe that since we can't fully identify with this country, we don't feel like we, we should even vote or have a say. Once, once you say, that, okay, this is what we're interested in, we're interested in the same things, yay, how do we get them to even register? So it's, it's a complicated question, and you're right for it to be frustrating. Yeah. Half of the battle is making the ask. Like We don't get asked by anybody to do any of those things most of the time. So don't overcomplicate it. So the easiest part of this is to make sure that you're making the S and that people are doing registration drives because you're not going to get everybody, right? but you're going to get more people. And if you make the ask, you get halfway home. But then if, when, the, when the point comes to motivate, there's got to be something that's personal to them. What are, we hear this in focus groups with infrequent or undervoted Latinos. Is what's in it for me? That's what are you going to do for me? Does that make sense? Yes. That's this, that, I mean, what Bernie Sanders said, I'm going to give you health care. I'm going to make college free for your kids. And I'm going to make sure everybody's making $15 an hour. And people are like, fuck, that helps me tomorrow. Like, yes, that guy. <laughs> yes. All right. So like, and then they will go stand in line to vote. Right. But what you shouldn't forget is that, and I remind everybody this, not in like, you shouldn't forget, like you don't know, but our demographic, the average age of a Latino in America is 27. The average age of a white voter is almost 40. Like there are so many more young because we have so many kids that are Latinos and we're growing yeah. so fast in that way. 
So we act like your generation. Like we act like young white kids, even though we're both Latino. And I'm not a kid by, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. That's what <laughs> remarkably good for an old brown man. But what I'm getting at there is that they're infrequent voters, not because they're infrequent voters, because they act like the white infrequent voters around them. They get distracted easy. They're drinking at night. They're chasing girls or boys or whatever they're chasing. Like there's just other things that are more important. But yeah. this generation that's coming up now is more astute because they've grown up under the hate of Donald Trump and they are already more progressive and more liberal. So they are motivated. And so we're, <laughs> we saw that in the off year election. So you have to build on that. There are 138,000 Latinos that have registered to vote in Arizona in the last, since Donald Trump has been president, right? I'm making sure that we're talking to them now through my super PAC in case the party or Joe Biden doesn't talk to them. Like, you don't fix this problem overnight, but I wanted to write the book to say we could fix this for the long term. If you, and the bottom line for the book is on voting, if you, because I do this for a living and have done it for 30 years, is that if you treat a Latino voter like you treat a white suburban infrequent voter or a moderate voter, like everybody talks about the white housewives in Philadelphia or in Chicago, right? Or the white steel worker who voted for Donald Trump, but also voted for Barack Obama. Like they spend all their time trying to figure out how to persuade white people, but no money investing in brown people. I've proved that if you do that, you get way more return on the brown people than you do on trying to sway another white person. Immigration is not a top three issue for any Latino voter. Okay. It's just not. Mm -mm. And most white consultants would say, we're not going to, you know, they just think we, we care about immigration. Even though it's not a top three issue, every time we went into a state and we sent the first mail piece, the first newspaper ad, the first TV commercial or the first digital commercial targeting Latinos in a state, we talked about Bernie Sanders' family's immigrant story. Now, the reason I did that, and it was, goes against everything we know to do, I did the opposite in this campaign almost. I said to them, just from my gut and doing this so long, I said, you know, we need to make a connection to a group of people that don't know who the hell he is other than an old white man from Vermont who talks funny, who's got a funny haircut. So the first thing we did is say, Bernie Sanders' father came here from another country and couldn't speak English and had no money. Bernie Sanders understands the immigrant story. And that's why he lived in blah, 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 and he's gonna do blah, blah, blah. But I needed Latinos to know that he understood what it was like to live in a family who came from another country, who couldn't speak English and who had no money, even though they were white. I needed to make a cultural connection. The key to that is starting early so that we could lead with that. If I only did that, it would never be enough. But I led with that to get you in here to talk to me, personal to your point. That's what made mm -hmm. me tell this story was the personal. Then we said, and now let me tell you about Medicare for all. And now let me tell you about the minimum wage. And now let me tell you, so we could just every week talk to them about a different thing that we were gonna do for you. But the first thing we had to do was say, I get you. I don't look like you. And I know I talk funny, but I get you. My fucking dad came here and couldn't speak English and didn't have any money, just like your dad or your grandmother or somebody in your family as well. And so that's some of the jujitsu shit that nobody knew we were doing. What advice would you give a young minority professional who would like to go into politics? God, it's like these softballs. Like it's, I talk about this in the book. You have to have white allies and you really have to have white allies almost more than black or brown. Right. So like there's a club of brown people in this town of D.C. 
and we all hang out together. We all know each other. We're all La Raza. Yeah. We all in California fights Texas. Like it's just a thing. Like that's what yeah. we do. And if you ain't from California, Texas, you Chicago Mexicans, you got to pick a side. It's California and Texas, right? So like that's just life. And then, <laughs> but to make it in this business, I talk about Jeff Weaver and I talk about John Soltz, who is a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserve, and he runs an organization called Vote Vets. This is the biggest good old boy club in the world. And less than 1% of all political consulting firms are owned by people of color. Well, there are more white women that own consulting firms than all the people of color combined. All due respect to white women, but they're doing fine in DC. And I respect that because they've owned a piece of this choice world, reproductive world, and they are killing it. And I love to watch them organize. But the Latinos and the black consultants, there's, I wrote a New York Times op-ed piece about campaigns don't look like me two weeks ago for my first op-ed in the New York Times. And I talk about how there's not an entryway in for broke black and brown kids, or for that matter, broke white kids. Because you can't come to this town and get a job unless your daddy or mama knows somebody, unless you want to take a free internship or a $30,000 LA job you know, maybe on Capitol Hill, because none of us come from wealth. It's a barrier to break in. Yeah. So I tell people to build alliances and have white allies. Don't be too prideful. I tell them the Bernie Sanders website story and say, I, I translated the website into Spanish. I wasn't offended that they called and asked me because I charged them money to do that. And for me, it was a lot of money, which was $500. And that $500 turned into millions of dollars worth of work because I went in and they gave me a little bit of work and I was good. And then Jeff said, oh, what, can you do this too? And so I did that too. And can you do this? So I got more and more and more responsibility as I proved myself, but I had a white ally named Jeff Weaver, right? And so it's my job as the leader in DC of the Latino community, one of the leaders, is to make sure that I hire all these Latinos and all these black kids mm -hmm. to work for me now and not call them an intern, because this is how the white boys do it, not call them a fellow, but call them an associate. And then in six months, they can get a job anywhere in this city. And I've got a hundred of those kids spread across this city right now in 10 years who've worked for me in my firm. And that's how we start making, growing off of each other. Now, one of two of my former employees have their own consulting firms. And that's fine if they want to compete with me. I'm happy that they do. They do a little different than I do, but that's how you make the change when you don't come from wealth or come from, you know, institutional where your daddy and mama know somebody in a law firm. Nobody in my family had ever been to college. I didn't know anybody here. You know, so it's, it's, it's much tougher for us. There were Latinos on this campaign that weren't quite qualified for the jobs that I gave them. And I did that almost on purpose. Because what I had found in 30 years of doing this work is all of the time, white men are given jobs that they're not qualified for. And somebody will say, don't worry, Timmy will grow into it. He will do fine. Nobody ever takes that chance with our community. So I made it a point to be like, you sister are going to be this director. You sister are going to be this deputy director and you can grow into the job. You're going to be just fine. It ain't that fucking hard. It's just doing it this way. Yeah. If you're in the room and you see people that do that, like, you know, that you learn. That's why yeah. it was important for me to be there. Cause I was the old man. I'm not old in any sense, mm -hmm. but I had, I had the most experience. So I knew that. Early on, I was given the keys to the car. I got to open up the office, literally go pick out an office and do all of that stuff. All of the people we were talking to, like I was figuring it out and I'd be like in my mind thinking, she's not qualified or he's not qualified to be the director. They're gonna to wanna to make her or him an associate. But why can't I just make them the deputy director and make them over all the white kids 
but still have a director's job title. Like I was thinking through, through shit like that the whole time. And the cool thing is because I got to work with Jeff and Faz, we created a pay scale for everybody and everybody made the same money. So there was pay equity for every woman and man in this campaign if they had the same job, no matter how much experience they had or no matter how much uh, whatever they self-identified as. Trans, woman, LGBT, I didn't give a shit what color you were, you all made the same thing. Like we would never ever have to hear that stuff again. That's amazing. There's a point in the book where we talk about the intentional hiring and how I brought Luis over, my right hand, who's a dreamer, who worked for me at the firm to be my right hand in the campaign. I talk about Anna Lilia Mejia, uh, a woman, uh, Afro-Latina, who ends up being the political director uh, and what those interviews were like and how she had a very personal moment with Bernie in the interview talking about her children. What is your call to action, given the year we're in, for any minority, black or brown, young listeners for these coming elections? I think we're at a, uh, we're at a unique time in history. Everybody's going to say it's the most important election of our lifetime, and they're right. But it's more than that. Uh, what we're fighting for is the soul of America. We have so many people that have righteous anger in our streets today around race. We have so many people around the border and kids and babies in cages. It's a time that we were made for as Americans and as Latinos and as black people to do more than just vote. You should go vote. You should get everybody to go vote. But we should have a unique time after Donald Trump is gone to, to pave another path, to, to make sure that nobody says Latinos don't vote again to no longer put up with police killing black men or black women or anybody in the streets of our own country, right? And I think that this horrible thing that's happened to us, which is Donald Trump, can also be a wonderful thing because it can help us actually change our country for the better. And so I want people to think about that in bigger terms and not just short and small term victories, but long-term progress, right? And uh, spend less time on Twitter and spend more time calling your mama. Pre-order Chuck Rocha's book, Theo Bernie, the inside story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos into the political revolution on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or find it on theobernie.com. You can also find a link to it on our website, wearelatinx.com. The book comes out August 19th. Which is during the DNC convention, and it's the night that Joe Biden will accept the nomination, because I thought that that would be a lot of conversations that week about Bernie Biden and the general election, and I wanted to be a part of that conversation about the Latino vote. Hey guys, thank you for listening. Make sure to support your communities. It doesn't matter what you choose to advocate for, just go out there and help, connect, and inspire others to do the same. Download our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can stay up to date. And join our community on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Latinx. Reach out and let me know what's important to you. I'd love to hear what you have to say.